So we are in Jude, and uh, we have been flying through the book of Jude, um, because Jude is one of those writings that every preacher wants to preach. He wants to walk through it verse by verse, uh, because there aren't any chapters, so it's just verse by verse, and and uh, I'm sure most of you have uh, been familiar over the last couple of weeks even more with Jude if you haven't been. Um, in our conclusion last week, we, we kind of left it at this place where Jude was talking to his audience and he was making sure that he wasn't going to leave any room for misunderstanding. The, the people hearing his appeal would definitely have a very clear picture of where he was going, what he was talking about, and, and what they were to be doing. In the, in the midst of these followers of Jesus, these believers, there were people that were coming into their gatherings. There were people that were coming into their relationships, and, and they were wreaking havoc in, in the midst of believers. They were, they were shipwrecking sometimes the faith of others, and, and overall, they were just defaming the name of Jesus. When we evaluated last week, um, we, we ended with looking at these people in a little bit of a different way, maybe a little bit more of a modern way, as instead of false teachers, influencers, right? And we ask ourselves the question, are we susceptible to influencers who make grace, that we talked about a lot this morning already, more fun than freedom, are we susceptible to influences who give us permission, often even encourage us to indulge our, our fallen nature more easily and more often? Are we susceptible to influencers who will gladly take Jesus as Savior, kind of the get-out-of-hell-free card, but they're unwilling to have him be Master and Lord? In light of this, it's, it's vital in Jude's words, that we contend earnestly for the faith. You remember what we talked about, if you were here last week in that word, there's an agonizing that's tied to that. Striving, straining, leaving nothing left in our effort to stay close to Jesus and what he has said. To study, to be able to know the truth, to by the Spirit of God discern error, to reject false grace to turn from sin and, and fully and completely embrace Jesus. We want to see clearly. We want to think rightly. What steps are we taking in our lives to reject influencers who reject Jesus in theirs? It matters. It matters. I want to start this morning by showing you an example of how important this was to the apostles you don't have to read too much of 2 Peter to realize that there's some overlay between his writing and, and Jude and that they were very much on the same page. And if you were to compare these writings side by side, now I, I put a graphic up, but only the people in the first two rows are going to be able to read it. I, I don't want you to necessarily read it. But on the left side, you see 2 Peter there. On the right side, you see Jude. And all of those highlighted areas are areas where in 2 Peter chapter 2 and part of chapter 3, there is alignment between Peter and Jude. And if you don't have time right now to look at it or you can't see it from there, uh, maybe go back and take a look. Overlay Jude and overlay Peter. It's interesting to find these apostles many times separated by many miles saying the same thing. 
Some scholars say that Peter was referencing Jude. Others say that Jude was referencing Peter, and both have their reasons. I tend to side with the, the Peter being first because when, when he's talking about these false teachers, he uses a future tense when he's referring to their presence. Added to that fact, um, Jude quotes the fulfillment of prophecy using the word mockers, which only appears in two places, Second Peter and, and Jude. Either way, both of these writers were being inspired by the same Holy Spirit, right? And, and, and both thoroughly convinced of the importance of their task to the faith and to the church. For Peter, these false teachers were coming. For Jude, they're here. As Jude makes his transition, he does what so many of the writers of Scripture, specifically the apostles, did and that was to give reminders what God had said, what people had seen in the display of God's power, how what God promised came to pass. In Romans, Paul did it in chapter 15, verse 15, he says, so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me from God. In 2 Timothy, he said, I remind you to kindle afresh. In Titus, he said, remind them to be subject to rulers. 2 Peter, remind them of these things, even though you already know them. You can see that throughout the writings of the apostles. They, they weren't afraid to repeat something over and over again. Because maybe, just like today, they had an audience that sometimes didn't listen. Or maybe they had an audience that was sometimes caught up with other things thinking about something else. So to repeat it over and over and over wasn't a problem for them because it was important. Now Jude had already stated that these false teachers, these first century influencers, had been marked out for condemnation. And now he's going to tie them to some of the historical reality of how seriously God takes things. Here's what Jude says in verse 5. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once and for all. Now that language is familiar to us, remember? Because he used that definitive language once and for all already when it came to the faith. You know that once and for all this was delivered to the saints. Here it's the same force, but Jude was reminding them that they knew about the things that he was about to say. And, and they could testify in some way to the validity of his statements. They knew that God, through history, was consistent in holding accountable under his judgment those who would corrupt the truth. His example here is that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt... Now, this was a clear reminder of God's love for his people and his desire to redeem them from bondage, Exodus 3. So I have come down to deliver you from the power of the Egyptians. So we, we walk through these things, Exodus 3.10. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. When the Pharaoh does not listen, then I will do these things. You, you will also observe this feast of unleavened bread. For on that very day, I brought you out, Right? Uh, the same day the Lord of hosts brought the sons of Israel out of Egypt in chapter 13 of Exodus, it will serve as a sign for you on your hand and on your forehead as a reminder how I brought you out of Egypt. So we know the story, right? God delivers. He continued by saying, subsequently, 
he destroyed those who did not believe. Now, these were the people who had seen his work. These were the people that had known his power. These were the people that followed for a moment or maybe even a group of moments. Then they didn't. Then they wouldn't. These were in, around, and a part of everything God was doing. In Numbers 14, it starts reading just a bit different. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them. Boy, that is a good biblical word, isn't it? Smite. I think we should try to revive the word smite. I will smite them. It wouldn't, it wouldn't, go, it wouldn't play well in this culture. I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier. Numbers 14 also says, I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. The Apostle Paul was kind of summing this up in, in 1 Corinthians 10. And it's actually worth the read. He says, I, I, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate of the same spiritual food and all drank of the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor, nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did when they were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages will come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with this temptation will provide a way of escape also, that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry." Paul summed it up pretty well, right? This idea that these people had, had, had turned and as a result were destroyed. The next, next group, historically speaking, were, were angels. Now, we, we have talked about angels before. We, we've gone through teaching on them. But this says, and, and angels, this is the second group, and angels who did not keep their domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As we look at this, we've, we've got to keep in mind that Jude has made it clear that the people that he is writing to are knowledgeable regarding what he is saying. 
because this particular portion is a really kind of tough portion. And, and here, that knowledge actually helps them, but not so much us, because this is one of those difficult passages in Scripture where, where scholars love to debate, right? They, lo- they love to get in there, and they love to take this part and this word and this thing, and, and they do all of that stuff. And, and a, a brief study of this reveals that, that multiple explanations have been offered for these angels and what they did in not keeping their domain, abandoning their proper abode. Some say Jude is talking about an event that his readers knew nothing about. Now that guy shouldn't be a scholar because it already says that Jude is talking to people that know about it. So we throw him away. Others believe it's part of the description of the fall of Satan. Um, But we know that Satan is not currently, as Jude says here, kept in eternal bonds under darkness. He's actually roaming about and doing those kind of things. And his demonic forces are even now on the prowl. Others believe it's referring to the account in Genesis 6 where sinful and so horrific things leads to events of destruction by flood of the earth. And they believe it to be fallen angels that Jude is referencing here. All the scholars always have their reasons, except that first guy, right? He's out. But each of these reasons, while they're, they're fun to pursue kind of intellectually, right? We, we, like, we like solving a mystery. We like, we like doing a puzzle. Um, we kind of can get sidetracked pretty easily from the real point. And that is that these angels did not keep their domain. That's the point. The word here used for domain has a range of meaning, but it gives the idea here of position of authority or responsibility or priorities from the beginning. That's... Arche, the word that's used there. In other words, God has uh, given these created beings a, a place or a structure that, that he has made to have some level of authority, influence, dominion, responsibility, and it was not enough for them. That's what this is telling us. That was not enough for them. What God had set up in his structure of the way things should be in the heavenlies was not enough for them. So their position wasn't enough for them. Then we find these angels abandoned their proper abode. Though though they were meant to reside in the heavenlies, they left behind the place they were created to dwell in. Discontent led to their abandoning, which we find in the next verse led then to gross immorality and embracing perversion in such a way that God chose not to wait until the end of time to stop them, but to place them in darkness and eternal chains awaiting final judgment. That's pretty serious. If you ever believe or let it enter your mind that God does not take sin Seriously, please do not. Now, whatever they did to to get here can lead to further investigation, but what's clear is the fact that there are things in which God sees as so heinous that he removes the offending parties permanently. They have no ability to influence anyone else ever again. This was the message that Jude was communicating to these believers who were being affected by these false influencers. They are under 
sentence. They will pay the penalty for their sin. They will be dealt with permanently, and some sooner than others. And and though it may seem strange, this, this this would have been a little bit comforting to people. Have you ever noticed how destabilizing it is when you believe that bad people get away with their evil? For, for those who witness it, it, it can produce, at, at first, a, a sadness when you see this guy did such evil things and he got away with it. This, this woman did such evil things. I, I want to be equally respectful of people doing wrong. So the guy can do it, the women can do it. But, but it, it produces this sadness first. And then after the sadness bubbles for a little bit, it, it gives way to anger, Right? that these people got away with it. And that gives way to resentment that whoever should have been doing something to keep this from happening and from them getting away with that, right? That gives way to disillusionment. How, How can this happen? Which then gives way to hopelessness. I guess this is the way it's always going to be. And then that turns to fear. Because if that's the way it's always going to be, what if I'm the guy that's having it happen to him? These people had witnessed the false teachers who were wreaking havoc on some, shipwrecking the faith of others. Would they get away with it? What, what could anyone do? The answer so far in Jude is to contend, in other words, stay in the fight and trust that God, you know, will deal with them as he sees fit and they won't get away with it. So with this in mind, Jude turns then to the last group in this historical look, the the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality, as these refers back to the previous verse, which would have been the angels, and went after strange flesh, are exhibited, exhibited, this is where the NAS is good and bad when you read it because it's hard to read, but it makes more sense, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, before we jump into this, I want you to notice the breadth of God's dealing with those who would go against his truth. The first group we actually see that he will not tolerate their disbelief is his own people. The second group that we see that he doesn't tolerate are those created heavenly hosts. The third group we see that he will not tolerate is the rest. So so God doesn't leave anybody out here. If there's any room for speculation that God would show favoritism on one group and kind of wink and nod and say, oh, that's okay, he doesn't do that. There is destiny appointed for all who oppose him. Here Jude gives the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. A quick review reminds us in Genesis 18 that the Lord heard this outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah, a great outcry because their sin was exceedingly 
wicked. In Genesis 19, you know the story. If you've read it before, two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting at the gate. Lot saw him, he rose to meet him and then all of a sudden uh, he tells them, hey, come, come quickly into my house and, and uh, they said, no, we're going to spend the night in the town square. He urged them strongly to turn aside to him and enter his house and prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Lot went to the doorway and said, please don't do this. You remember what he offered, right? His own daughters. It was a wicked, wicked moment of time. So wicked that in order to preserve it, the men were actually struck with blindness so they could not continue their pursuit. What's clear in this account is that the men of Sodom supposed these visitors to be just men. And in Jude's words, they desired to indulge in gross immorality. Again, that same thing harkens back to the angels in the verse before. The, the phrase is summed up in a compound word, ex pornuo, meaning from lewd things or from some type of sexual relations. That's the PG-13 version of it. Jude also says they went after strange flesh, which means other or different, referring to that which is contrary to nature. Here, that phrase is kind of doubly significant because it wasn't just the perversion that we would call homosexuality today. If allowed, they would have also crossed another line into perversion with heavenly beings, angels. Both extreme, both contrary to the order that God had designed. So as Jude continues to describe this corrupt behavior, he points to it using the words exhibited. Exhibited here actually carries the meaning of the hope that is set before you. And then he uses the word example, which means display of. So what Jude is describing using Sodom and Gomorrah and the flames that consumed them is meant to elicit in the readers this idea of the future hope of these false teachers. Those who leave the faith, those who know truth and walk away from it, those who know and reject and walk away and then teach others in ways in order to corrupt them. Their future hope, according to Jude here, is to suffer God's judgment in eternal fire. If you think God is not serious related to his truth, think again. It's a sobering reality that, that once again brings the truth of, of what is going on in this evil world face to face with the reality that there is a God in heaven. He is not aloof. He is not fooled. And he will not be mocked. So... So how does this help us as, as, as we view this? 
Because, right, the, the practical application is all we want at the end. I mean, all this other stuff I've been saying, here, here, I can do away with that. Just give, give, me the, give me the points, what I'm supposed to do, right? First, we are able to see three areas that God has not and will not allow to stand without judging. Now, again, remember, we're talking about these false teachers. We're talking about these false influencers. And as we talked about last week, the false teachers don't have to be in the church anymore, Right? You can scan a QR code and go right to their website. <laughs> See what I'm saying there? All right. Sorry. I, that just, that, that, that's not even in the notes. I don't know why I would say something like that. But he, there, there's three things that God won't allow to stand without judging. The first is disbelief of his truth. That's example number one that Jude gave. Discontent with and disobedient to his established authority. That's the second one Jude gave. And the third one is deviant behavior to his natural order. This establishes the truth that there is no have it your way in God's kingdom. Now I'm going I'm to sidetrack. How many of you have heard the new Burger King commercials? Raise your hand. The guy just making up words as he goes along, as he's singing the Burger King. I can't tell you how offensive that is to me, knowing the old Burger King song. And, and when, I, when I wrote this down, Have It Your Way, it reminded me of the Burger King song. And I, I thought, am I alone here that this guy is just making up words to a commercial and he's getting paid for it and it doesn't even make sense. I'll never remember the words that he said. But that Burger King song, hold the pickles, hold the lettuce, special order. See, you're singing it already, some of you. Now, you younger guys, you'll get the QR code later and you can scan it. And... <laughs> but here's the thing. That song was played over and over and over and over and over and over and over every time there was a commercial on about Burger King. And you know what? I can sing it today at, at 56 years old when I heard it when I was six. Right? You think reminder isn't important? You think repetition isn't important? You think what Jude is saying is not important? You think what Peter uh, illustrates as well is not important? You think all the things the apostles said over and over and over and over aren't important? They are. The second thing we are able to see is not just the categories. We also see their end. The first thing that Jude said ends in destruction. The second thing that Jude said has a permanent end, no longer able to influence. And the third one is, it's eternal. Eternal punishment. This establishes the truth that when and if people are allowed to have it their way, they're not going to like it. They're not going to like it. Next week, Jude will make an important transition for practical application, and he's going to start to describe the, the character traits and, and even the motive of these false teachers, these influencers. But before we get into that, there's, there's one thing more I, I want to draw out here, and that is these historical insights actually do help us practically explore what false teaching would or could sound like today. First is this... If it's disbelief, it would sound something like this. It would attempt to highlight what God has said is not true. That's what a false teacher and a false influencer would do. 
He, they would attempt to highlight the things that God has said in whatever the way they might do it to undermine the fact that it's true. They would attempt to disprove what God has said, what, what God has done as not God. Well, God didn't really do that. I mean, that just happened by such and such and such and such, right? Or they would go the other route and they would simply make it irrelevant. It's really not important if God did that or not. The third is that they would attempt to cast doubt on what God has promised will come to pass. How do you know you can trust that? I mean, really? I mean, that's so far, right? The modern day influencer is going to use disbelief. And that's what it's going to look and sound like. Now, now whether we recognize it or not, this has been going on since Jude wrote these things. In our modern context, it often takes the form of, of scholarship and, and academic pursuit. When I was in college, there was, there was a, a big thing that was going on at the time, uh, discussions on what was called textual criticism. Simply put, textual criticism is when linguists and scholars get together and they take all of the fragments of scripture that, that we have, because we don't have original manuscripts, but we've got like tens of thousands of fragments and parts and pieces that have been found through the centuries. And they, they, they put all those things together and they look at them and they go over them over and over and over and, and they want to most accurately say what the Bible says. Now we know that the one that we can trust is the NASB, right? The New American Standard Version. So I can't vouch for the others, but this one, no, I'm, I'm kidding. There's a lot of good translations out there. But it's very important work. It's very helpful to us today when it starts from the right premise. That God inspired men to write what he wanted humanity to know concerning himself. And he preserved that so that we might live rightly before him. That's the premise that the textual critics must come from. When it does not do that, it goes a different route. And in 1990, 87, 98, 89, 90, 91, that time frame, there was this thing that was going on called the Jesus Seminar. And it, it took about six years for them to do all of this damage, work, they called it, um, on, on what Jesus in history most likely said. Would you believe that these scholars, scholars, biblical scholars, linguistic scholars, actually came together and said that about 80% of the words attributed to Jesus in the gospel, he didn't say. Virtually all of Jesus' words in the gospel of John were voted down by the scholars, including John 3.16. There were 200 people in this group. They started meeting in 1985. They examined particular gospels, types of sayings, and then, then they based their, their discussions on their own studies and their own scholarship. They used an unconventional method of voting, uh, maybe so nobody would be offended, but they, they, they used beads, little beads, and they would drop them into the ballot box um, and, and a red and a pink bead would be dropped in if they were probable or possible authentic sayings. Gray and black beads were uh, sayings that allegedly revealed some theological bias by the gospel writers or by the, the translators or something else. This was the conclusion 
by the guy who headed it up. Many mainstream Christians can no longer believe the picture of Jesus they got as a child. That was the Jesus seminar. That was influencers. That was false teachers, modern day. Today it looks a little different and and goes by a different name. Um, It's called deconstructing faith. As, as much as the textual critics did, um, it, it, it can be positive, right? When it leads us to examine church culture and, and the faith that might have gotten influenced or distorted or redefined in some way that's biblical and harmful. So if the textual critics or, or the people that are looking at uh, restructuring or deconstructing faith are saying, look, we're looking at the church and where it's missed the mark on what scripture teaches. That's one thing. Where it goes astray is when it's willing to throw out everything that the faith, as Jude gave it, is founded on, only to realize that when they're at the end of throwing everything out, there's no building blocks to to build back on. They go so far down the road of deconstructing their faith, there's nothing left of their faith. There's nothing left to faith, except for the thoughts of man, the heart of man, the desires of man, as it pertains to what they want or need from God. What we've got to remember is that there are those who traffic in disbelief. And, and dealing with them is part of contending for the faith. The second, if, if it were going to be espoused in our, in our time, it, it would sound like discontent and disobedience, and it would be um, those who look for other ways to find contentment outside of God. They would encourage that. It, it would discount that complete satisfaction is found in God alone and who he is. You can find it some other way. It would sound like permitting disobedience, following the heart's desire for a sense of greater fulfillment, right? It would sound like spirituality that abandons religion. Sounds good, right? I was going to get into this and give some examples, but I realized that, that many of them are kind of found in the isms that surround us. The things that are being promoted today and have been promoted for quite a long time, actually, like materialism, like hedonism, like secularism, like humanism, like individualism, like existentialism, like moral relativism, right? All these isms. And, and what do they do? They look for ways to find contentment outside of God and who he is. What we must remember is that there are those who traffic in discontentedness and disobedience. And, and dealing with them is part of contending for the faith. Lastly, it would sound like deviant behavior, It would look to find ways to promote, normalize, and even celebrate depravity. It would encourage tolerance for unrestrained, outrageous, immoral behavior. It would seek to abolish standards, conviction, 
or conscious objection to any restraint of human desire. Now, to be clear, there's a lot of depraved behavior recorded in Scripture. But would it surprise you to know that the reference to Sodom and Gomorrah in this way is used over 20 times in the Scriptures as an example of ungodly, depraved, deviant living? Do you remember the context here? These things were foreseen by Peter as coming. And for Jude, they had already crept into the midst of believers. People trafficking in disbelief. People trafficking in abandoning God's authority, discontentedness leading to disobedience. People trafficking in deviant behavior. So if, if Peter was seeing it coming and Jude saw it as already kind of in the midst, where would you say we are today? When churches exist that have allowed people to believe that Jesus is not the only way, truth, and life, that God will accept something or someone else or some other way to reconcile a person to himself, and they do so in order to stay relevant. How about when churches grow because of inspirational, charismatic leadership who care more about their influence of their words than the authority that's found in Scripture? How about when entire denominations not only tolerate, but affirm and ratify deviant sexual behavior as loving and acceptable to God? Jude's cry is one for clarity as to where all this leads. Destruction, bondage and darkness, judgment and eternal punishment. And he is trying to tell believers, wake up. See what's going on. Do not be influenced. And I don't care if it's the most popular thing on TikTok. Or, for you old timers, the most popular thing in the newspaper. Right? I'm just kidding, just kidding. The point being that there has to be clarity for those who know the truth to not be influenced, but to stand. And when you begin to stand, you will many times stand alone. But remember what Paul said. Even when I thought I stood alone, I didn't stand alone, right? So I went back through this week and I was looking at some, you know, I've been off the news for quite some time, but I went back through this week and I'm, I'm looking for things because I had a folder 10 years ago of persecution that was coming to the church. I had about four or five articles. This week I was able to find six or eight places where Christians are being targeted for simply standing up for biblical truth. This is not the weird Christians. This is not the crazy Christians. This is not the ones who are acting like they're not Christians. These are just people that want to stand true to what God has said. It's real. For those who know the truth, though, they must not be influenced. 
They have to stand. Not, not overwhelmed, not fearful, but trusting in God. Right? The question for us today is, are we clear? Are we clear? Or have we even in our own lives, maybe not in the church as a whole, but in our own lives, have we allowed influencers in that traffic in disbelief? Have we allowed influencers in that, that want to lead us to contentment in some other source? To give us permission to be a little disobedient here, a little disobedient there, because it's just who you are, right? I mean, it sounds so familiar. Have we let people in to influence us that the deviance of the world that surrounds us is okay? Now, I know I'm getting a little bit away from the false teachers, right? But in reality, these false teachers were just people who had influence over and were perceived as something good instead of what they really were. They were not believers. They were not followers of Jesus. They had already been condemned. So I think we can pull it out just a little bit, make the scope just a little wider than just the people that sit in this room today or on any given Sunday. Where's your influence? Where's the truth? Are we seeing clearly? Because the other end of all that stuff is not good. And God's serious. God's serious. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. That it is able to divide the bone from the marrow, the soul from the, the spirit, the, the thought from the intention. That's pretty precise surgery. And I thank you that you're willing to do surgery in our hearts to remind us of things important, but also, Lord, to allow us to see clearly. So many times we can, we can just be in the malaise of life. We turn the TV on because we don't want silence. We watch something on our phones because we just can't stand to have nothing to do. And all of those things influencing. Would you give us a better filter, Lord, for those influences? Reminding us the end of those who do not believe those who look for contentment outside of who you are and are willing to disobey in order to be, in their words, content. Would you remind us, Lord, that we live in a highly sexualized culture that is not moral in its approach, but immoral. And that deviance is celebrated even as it destroys life after life after life. Lord, would you help us as we stand? Would you help us as we contend, Lord, to know the end, to know the end, Lord?
And as we will read later, it's not just for the purpose of, of saving ourselves. There's another part to the mission too. And Lord, I thank you for your word and the way it impacts our minds and hearts and the way we can't get away from it. So this week, Lord, would you help us to identify the people influencing disbelief in the Almighty God, discontentedness in who he is and what he has done that, that leads to disobedient life and deviant behavior. And Lord, would you let us see them for who they are and see their end? Would you give us compassion for them? Would you give us the ability to speak into their lives truth, Lord? And if possible, to see you save some. We're grateful to you, Lord, for who you are and what you do in our lives on a daily basis to draw us to you because we would not draw ourselves. You are God, we are not. And we are grateful for your grace and your mercy. And we love you, Jesus. Amen.